All right, so this evening we come to the beginning of the end of our study in chapter 7 of the Confession. And I'm not going to say it's the end of our study of covenant theology because the rest of the Confession assumes and is very much uh, covenantal language. So uh, just like I told you, we never leave the doctrine of the Trinity really. We never leave covenant theology really. Um, But uh, tonight we're going to really start considering sections 2 and 3 again as we conclude by seeing that the covenant of grace and the new covenant are one and the same covenant um, as opposed to other views which uh, would say that the new covenant is merely an administration of the covenant of grace. Um, Then we'll hope to look at the elements of the covenant um, I'm not sure if we're going to get into that tonight or not. We shall see. Um, We may start that. We'll just see how it goes. Um, But we'll get into the elements of the covenant um, just as we've looked at the elements of each of the covenants of promise. Um, This is what we've been building to by looking at the covenants of promise. So uh, to begin with, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read sections 2 and 3 of chapter 7 in the Confession, um, because we are very much looking at both of these sections kind of together. So, uh, section 2 starts, Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, He freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. And in section 3, it says, This covenant, talking about the covenant of grace, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman, After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. So, our first point that we need to understand about the covenant of grace is how section 2 begins. Again, it says, Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, we've looked at the covenant of works and the fall of man in great detail, Um, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. End quote. God is not under any obligation to enter into covenant with his creatures in the first place. And this is not just in terms of a covenant of grace. This is any covenant. So, he is certainly not under any obligation to make a covenant with creatures of the dirt who willingly and purposely rebelled against him and violated his law and broke his first covenant. So if he's not under obligation to make a covenant in a state of innocence, 
how much more is he not under obligation when we sin? God would have been perfectly justified if he had destroyed Adam and Eve at the moment, the very moment they sinned. And likewise, he would be perfectly justified to leave us in our sins and the punishment that is rightly due to them. Yet, it was pleasing to him that he should show mercy and grace to his chosen people. This is what pleases him. You understand this? So this is talking about God's character. God shows mercy to whom he will. He delights in showing mercy to whom he will. Now, this goes against the egalitarian impulse that pervades our culture today, including within the church. And truth be told, I think if we look at Scripture, it's not just today. There is a certain egalitarian impulse that seems to be inherent within fallen man. Because some of the same arguments that we may see today, Paul addresses. Um, So it must have been an issue when the Bible was still being written as well. There is this idea that God gives literally every single person who ever lives and breathes on his earth the opportunity to be saved. Now, there is a sense in which that's correct. Scripture says, the one who does them, that is the works of the law, shall live by them. In other words, each of us had our shot to earn a right standing in God's sight by perfectly keeping his law. However, the scripture also informs us that it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners by birth and by choice. We are sinners by birth in that we have fallen Adam as our father and covenant head according to the covenant of works. So as long as we're just in the flesh, we are in Adam. And being in Adam, we are sinners. And we are sinners by choice in that we have a sin nature and we act in accordance with that nature. Again, Scripture says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That, and that's Romans 3, uh, 10b through 12, if you want to look that up. That is a description of the will. So what's uh, the beginning of that is none is righteous, talking about in their being. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, we're in the mind. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become, being, see, worthless. So this is what we are in our being. No one does good. So now we're talking about what we're doing, not even one. Um, So the descriptions of the will and then the deeds done in accordance with that fallen will. My point here is that we all have our chance, if you want to think of it in those terms, 
and we have, every one of us, blown it. There is no excuse. No one, no one has an excuse before God. We have, as I said, we have all together become worthless. God does not owe to sinners that he should give them another opportunity to live. In fact, he didn't owe the opportunity he gave. R.C. Sproul, as usual, uh, explains this very well. And I'm going to extensively quote him here. So he says, quote, It does not seem just for God to choose some to receive his mercy, while others do not receive the benefit of it. To deal with this problem, we must do some close but very important thinking. Let us assume that all men are guilty of sin in the sight of God. From the mass of guilty humanity... God sovereignly decides to give mercy to some of them. What do the rest get? They get justice. The saved get mercy and the unsaved get justice. Nobody gets injustice. Mercy is not justice, but neither is it injustice. Mercy is a good form of non-justice, while injustice is a bad form of non-justice. In the plan of salvation, God does nothing bad. He never commits an injustice. Some people get justice, which is what they deserve, while other people get mercy. Again, the fact that one gets mercy does not, get that, it does not demand that the others get it as well. God reserves the right of exclusive or, or executive clemency. End quote. What was that from? I think that was from Chosen by God, I think is the name of the, uh, the book that I took that from. <clears throat> and that was R.C. Sproul. Yet, God does not merely overlook <coughs> the sins of the elect. Okay? There was a lot of talk about justice in that quotation I just read to you, and I uh, definitely would affirm everything Sproul said, but there is one element he would have affirmed, but it was not in that quotation, and that is, yeah, but what do we do with the sins of the elect? Um, God, uh, God does not merely overlook the sins of the elect because to do that really would be an injustice. That is, sin would occur... And the just penalty for it would never be satisfied. So then we really do have a problem. But the confession states this. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. So, let's turn now to Romans chapter 3. And uh, we are going to be looking at uh, verses 21 through 26. Now, the context is what I just quoted uh, a few moments ago about none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, etc., etc. The point that Paul is making there is whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, you're all sinners, all of you. That's his point. And so he's essentially saying... um, 
Well, actually, let's back up to verse 20 because that it's a good summary statement, verse 20. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But, one of the best words in the Bible, because he could have left it there, but he didn't. But, now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just. He's just because He has punished the sins of the elect in Christ. But at the same time, because He has punished the sins of the elect in Christ, He can also said to be, uh, to be this, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, Jesus gets our sin and the penalty that is due to it. We get the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, and the reward that's due to it. So, uh, we'll get into this a little bit more later, but I'm going to just take a detour right here on my soapbox. So, if anybody ever tries to say that in any way, shape, or form that our sanctification, our good works, uh, anything we do after justification plays a part in us getting into heaven. May they be accursed. That's what Scripture says. Our works play no part whatsoever in our entrance into heaven. They are the fruit of justification. Likewise, they are the fruit of sanctification. A growing in grace is not the works we do. A growing in grace is evidenced by the works we do. Okay? We get into heaven based on the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ and the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. That's it. Nothing else. Okay? So our sanctification, yes, it accompanies our justification. If there is no sanctification... You probably should question your justification. But the sanctification does not gain you entrance into heaven. As some reformed teachers are teaching now. Alright. Soapbox over. Come back. Um, <laughs> moving back into section 3. Uh, we see this covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel. And we have seen how it was revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. We looked at the covenant of works, we looked at how it was broken, and we looked at the promise that came after that. In the midst of curse, we saw the promise of gracious salvation. After that, it was revealed more and more, step by step. Or the original wording of the confession, by farther steps 
until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. So that's important. It's completed in the New Testament. There's nothing else to be revealed about it. In other words, it was revealed in the form of a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden and progressively revealed step by step in each of the major successive covenants of the Old Testament era until the fully revealed or concluded new covenant was established. And that's what we've been building towards. That's why I wanted to go through each one of these Old Testament covenants because the confession just says by farther steps and moves on. And I understand why. They were trying to show their unity with the other Puritans, not their disunity. But for our purposes, I think it's important to see what does that mean, farther steps. So that's why we've taken all this time to look at the covenant of works, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, especially the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants. That's why. Because I wanted us to see how these are building and building and building until we finally have the full revelation in this covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood. Um, Let me pause for a minute. Any questions, conversation, anything? Okay, we'll move on then. Now, uh, this part, I think this is where we're going to end, and even if we have to end early, that's okay. We'll see. Um, We're just going to start this way. We're going to move now into the distinctive features and the elements of the New Covenant. So first, the context. The context of the New Covenant is what the uh, Confession calls the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son, and I've argued previously, and the Spirit, concerning the redemption of the elect and every one of the historical covenants we have covered up to this point as well. That's the context. So everything that was revealed in the Old Testament is the context for the New Testament. On this point, Sam Renahan comments, quote, Jesus Christ completed his heavenly mission in the context of the earthly covenants of Israel. We have a heavenly mission. We have an earthly context. Okay? Born under the law to redeem those under the law. And in the new covenant, he freely granted the salvation and new creation inheritance he obtained in the covenant of redemption. That's the covenant in the Trinity to all who received him by faith. So I've previously told you every single one of these covenants are fulfilled in Christ. The law of the covenant of redemption fulfilled. The covenant of works fulfilled. The requirements of the Abrahamic covenant, we, told, we talked about the dualistic nature. The law side fulfilled. The grace side fulfilled. The law of the Mosaic Covenant fulfilled and the promises of the Davidic Covenant and the law, which is the same law as the Mosaic, fulfilled in Christ. So the establishment of the covenant. We actually commemorate the establishment of this covenant every single Lord's Day. So if you would, uh, or if you're wanting to follow along with me, turn to uh, Luke 22. 
uh, and we're looking at verses 14 through 20. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Picking up in verse 14, it says, And when the hour came, he, that being Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. In my blood. What is portrayed in the supper <clears throat> is the death that established the new covenant, which is expressly said here to be the covenant, the new covenant that is in Christ's blood. That is what we are celebrating every time we partake of the supper. Um, Let's look at another passage on the establishment of this covenant. Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, while you're flipping over there, I am going to just go ahead and recommend this to you. If you want a good understanding of covenant theology, read Hebrews. It is uh, very much a, a covenantal structure in that book. Um, much of uh, much of the, uh, I, I guess you'd say, go-to texts for Reformed Baptists are going to be in Hebrews, um, one of which we're about to look at. <clears throat> so we're looking at Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 28, which is the end of the chapter. So Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So that is a look back to the tent uh, from the Mosaic Covenant where God would meet with his people. That is, that is now being said to be essentially a copy. We'll get into that in a minute. But that is a copy of the heavenly things. So that, Jesus entered into the tent that is not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So once you're redeemed, you're redeemed. There's no going back. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator 
of a new covenant. Okay, spoiler alert for those who haven't looked ahead to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is on Christ, the mediator. So he is mediator of what? The new covenant. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying... This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But... The heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. After reading a passage like that, how could you ever doubt your salvation? (laughs) Because it's all reliant on Him. Okay, let me pause again. Any uh, anything anybody wants to talk about before I move on to this next part? All right. We're going to move on then. So the next part, the contracting parties. We're moving into the elements now, okay? Uh, The contracting parties are God and the elect. Uh, And for this part, we are going to look at three different passages. Um, First, Jeremiah chapter 31 I belabored this point in this text a few weeks ago. Don't worry, I'm not going to hold you here an hour this time. (laughs) Um, But we are at least going to look at it. All right. um, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not 
like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So in this passage, this covenant is expressly said to be made with the house of Israel. It's not made with all of humanity. It's made with the house of Israel. Who is Israel? So let's answer it. Let's go to Romans 9. (laughs) You're right, that is the question. Romans chapter 9. So we see the new covenant is made with Israel. Now who is Israel? Chapter 9 of Romans, verses 6 through 8. Really, we could probably take the entire chapter, but I'll just limit it to 6 through 8. It says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And he's saying this because not all of Israel has been saved. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So not all of physical Israel is the true spiritual Israel of God. Um, And then for the rest of this chapter, he goes on to explain that and to field an objection. And I did not include this in my notes, but it just hit me that I started with the egalitarian thing, and he kind of addresses that. So I'm just going to keep reading so we look at it, okay? Um, So still picking up in verse 9. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. There's another reason for confidence. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, which means it's outside of us. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Then Paul and He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we can even say the Holy Spirit then anticipates the objection. What shall we say then? Is there injustice? See why Sproul's talking about justice so much? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. So not what's going on internally and not what's going on externally in us. 
but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's a tough one. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his mercy for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? Now up to this point, he's talking about those who are of physical Israel. Okay, Not all of Physical Israel is true Israel. Only elect Israel is the true Israel. But then he switches gears a little bit and he says, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Wow, Gentiles are part of true Israel. As indeed he says in Hosea, okay, now we're going to appeal to other scripture. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. <clears throat> kind of got off trail there. For, I think it went along with the egalitarian thing, so I just wanted to hit that since it hit my brain. All right, uh, so we just answered the question then, who is Israel? And so the answer to the question, and we're going to look at one more passage, the answer to the question is the children of promise, the elect, are the Israel of God. And for that, we're going to go to Ephesians. <laughs> I was waiting for somebody else to say it. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Ephesians uh, 1, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. <clears throat> it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so before we even existed, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons, here's the key, through Jesus Christ, According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of His grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. But then he goes on and he says, In him you also, we Jews, receive this. But then you Gentiles in Ephesus also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, the contracting parties, God and the elect, it is an exclusive covenant. And that is God's choice. All right. Yeah, I think we'll go ahead and start. Okay, so components. So first thing, conditions. So we've looked at the conditions in all of these covenants. And there have been conditions in all of these covenants up to this point, right? Here I need to draw your attention back to something that we talked about in the beginning of our study on covenant theology. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the very first lecture. And this is number 11, so I'm sure you remember that in exhaustive detail, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's why it's on the board. Um, If you'll look at the uh, board, um, I drew a chart on the whiteboard which was taken from San Renahan's book on covenant theology, and we've looked at that in that past lesson. Um, But we compared the different kinds of covenants. So there's covenants of works, there's covenants of grace, okay? There can also be mixed covenants. We've seen mixed covenants as we've been considering this. The Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant were mixed covenants, right? They were dualistic. There was a grace component and there was a works component. Um, But if you look there, okay, so the matter, um, to refresh your memory, the matter... This is the commitment of the parties, okay? And we use the analogy taken from Renahan uh, of a marriage, okay? You're you're exchanging vows, right? That's the matter, okay? So in the first type of of a covenant, we have a law matter. We are making vows that are legal. They're law, okay? In the second one, promise so I have to keep a law I don't have to keep a promise made to me Now, if I make a promise I have to keep it but if I'm the one receiving the promise I don't have to keep that alright now this big word re-stipulation it's really not that, that difficult re-stipulation is just simply the response of the respondent covenant partner to the terms set out by the initiating covenant partner. Or to put that in this context, that's our response to God. 
Okay, God initiates the covenant, we respond. So this is how we respond to God's covenant matter. Okay, in a law covenant, the response is to be obedience. But in a covenant of promise, it is to be reception. So we're given a law, we keep it. But we're given a promise, we just receive it. Okay? Um, then the sanctions, uh, these are threats that enforce covenantal commitments. Okay? Um, so in the law type, we have covenant partner. Okay? Um, and then in the second time, we have, or the same one, we have covenant imposer. So law covenant is a tit for tat. If you do this, then I will do that, right? In promise, it is, I will do this. The end. <clears throat> and then finally, the form, and that is what we have usually are going to use to refer to these things, covenant of works, covenant of grace. So you see the different components of the different types of covenants. All right, every covenant we've looked at up to this point, every single one of them has followed the pattern of a covenant of works, but not this one. Not the new covenant. <clears throat> Pascal Denault comments, quote, the unconditional nature constitutes the radically new and unique element of the new covenant. For the credo-baptists, or as we just call it, baptists, the new covenant was radically new since no other formal covenant before it was unconditional. The promises of the old covenant were preceded by an if that made them conditional man's obedience, while the promises of the new covenant were marked by a divine monergism, end quote. And if you don't know what the word monergism is, okay, a lot of times at work, maybe you've heard the term synergism. And the idea is we're working together, right? Monogism, mono one, it means one of us is working. So <clears throat> when we're talking about monergism in terms of divine covenants, we are talking about God acts alone. That's the idea. We don't help him get us there in any way. He does it all. Now, it may be objected at this point that our confession actually does name a condition of the covenant because we just read it, namely that of faith in Christ. It, it says that, right? Uh, he requires faith of us. Is that not an obedience? <clears throat> yeah, this is correct, but I think it's still appropriate to consider the covenant as unconditional for the elect for this reason. Because even the condition that is placed on us is provided by God, which is also acknowledged in the confession. It says, on their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life. So that means he already made a choice. He made the choice. <clears throat> and to make them... So the purpose of that giving of the Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. He changes our affections and our wills. Okay, He gives us an ability that in our fallen nature we don't have. But once we have a change of will, we seek, our, we seek the things that we desire. Right. 
So if our will desires something, we're going after it. Well, if he's changed our wills now from having just a sinful will to now, okay, now we're renewed, right? Now we desire the things of God. So now we, not only can we, certainly we will seek the things of God, including faith. Uh, as Augustine famously prayed, he said, quote, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command, end quote. And for the uh, people here that are really interested in church history, you know, uh, this is what ticked off Pelagius. Uh, he just could not stand this prayer. And so <clears throat> that's what got him to come out into the open as a heretic, and we condemn Pelagianism formally now, the church does, um, and unfortunately now we're all normally semi-Pelagian in our thinking. I know we're not here, but that's definitely the majority view. That was free. <laughs> um, additionally, it needs to be understood that while the new covenant is unconditional as it relates to its members, so we don't do anything except receive it, right? So it's unconditional in, th in that sense for us. That does not mean it is absolutely unconditional. Okay? Because we looked at this, right? So somebody made a promise and we got to keep it. So that means the one making the promise got to do something. Right? Renahan explains, quote, The new covenant is a covenant of works already kept and mediated in Christ to an elect people. This is what grants it the name the new covenant of grace, end quote. Again, Denault asserts that, quote, the Baptists did not conceive of the unconditional nature of the new covenant as coming from the abolition of the covenant of works. On the contrary, the new covenant was unconditional according to them since the covenant of works was accomplished. Thus, the new covenant was unconditional for all its members, but it was not for its mediator, Christ. In other words, the reason the new covenant is unconditional for the elect is because, as the song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Or, to use more biblical language, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, again, if we turn back in our thinking to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, I'm not going to read it again, but just briefly, what is the primary difference marked out between the Old and New Covenants in that passage? It's that the Old Covenant, which was a covenant of works, was broken, and the New Covenant, which is a covenant of grace, is unbreakable by its members. So this is where we're going to conclude right here. We have about five minutes, so I'm just going to stop right here, and we'll pick up there next week, Lord willing. Um, is there anything that anybody wants to add to that? Or So just to be clear, no one in the Old Testament was ever saved by doing works of life. No, correct. That's absolutely correct. Um, the position would be... 
according to our confession, and I think according to the Bible, that everybody from the fall of Adam, everybody is saved the exact same way, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe that can look a little different in different eras because in Old Testament times they're looking forward, whereas we're looking backward. But it's still <coughs> faith in the Messiah. Okay? And faith alone in the Messiah. All right, anything else? All right, if nothing else, we'll, uh, we'll pray and we'll dismiss. <clears throat> Father in heaven above, again, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus and we thank you for your gracious covenant in Christ's blood. I pray that you would help us to think on this every day of our lives, the amazing grace that you've shown us um, you would have been perfectly justified to leave us in our sins and to damn us to hell and instead it pleased you. It pleased you that you would not do that but rather that you would send your son to take our place, to take the penalty that we justly deserve and to give us his righteousness and to thereby give us the reward that he deserves. I don't even know how to put that into words. That's just wonderful. So, Lord, we thank you for that. Help us to live in the light of that truth um, with our faith being fully in Christ. And I pray that it would produce the good works which accompany justification and that these would be unto your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.